Welcome to another episode of Populous. I'm Steve Hafer, and the ying to my yang is Kurt Trittner, and he's sitting here right with us. Hello, Kirk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 14. This episode's top 10 will be all about best Disney movie songs. Now, we got to be clear. That's a pretty big path if you're going with Pixar and Touchstone and all the other variants. So, nope, these are just Disney movies that we're going to be talking about today. And even then, Steve, I thought there were way too many songs to choose from. This was a lot of fun doing the research, as it always is. But I think this list is going to be our most varied list yet. Yeah, it definitely has that possibility. And I remember pitching to you that we cut Pixar and Touchstone because I was already starting to feel overwhelmed. Then I thought, oh, God, this will be so much easier. (laughs) No, no, no. I could have done a top 25 for this and still had difficulties selecting who was going to be in it. There was a lot of material and a a lot of great material. And it it almost feels like a crime that things that are being off the list, uh, it's like, wow, they are definitely deserving. And I think people will hear us say a lot that that almost made my list. Uh, We'll try not to do that too much. but. Um, Before we start off, I just want to give a special shout out and much thanks to some of our amazing listeners who became donors to the show recently. Uh, We appreciate it tremendously. You sure help make the show go. Uh, You know, just check out our donors page uh, and uh, the list of honor because those names are on there now, uh, which you have all been placed. And uh, Kirk and I really appreciate it. And we applaud you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you all very, very much. You know who you are. But back to this week, uh, did you use a certain criteria? I used several, and that's what made it hard. We were talking about this before we started taping, is that part of the challenge I had was how did I want to frame the list? How did I want to define that list? What was the objective way of doing this? And I, I went with so many ideas, and and with that, the songs rearranged, songs shifted places, some songs dropped off, some songs were added. Um And, you know, as we always say, if we did this show tomorrow, this list could be completely different. But as of today, I think I've got a pretty solid list. And to me, it's not only the best songs, but it's what best represents Disney as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's no joke about rearranging if we did this tomorrow. Uh, Last night, three, three songs left my list. Three new ones came on. Uh, There was especially for that bottom six of the list. It, it always <laughs> seems to hover and get a range. I'm usually pretty confident with my top three, top four, top five, and most lists. This one, I was only really confident about the top five, knowing that they'd be on the list somewhere. But it, even with the exception of number one, I wasn't sure where things were going to see. I kind of used the criteria of what is important uh, or which song was important in advancing that Disney feel and the Disney image, that overall scope of what Disney is. Um, Also the importance in advancing the story of the film that the song is in and identifying, you know, a big character moment or description of what's going on in the movie. And just also what is just a really good superior piece of music. Uh, So that, you know, it's kind of tough to take the blend, but Disney does a great job doing it. As we mentioned when you and I were talking so many great composers and you know the modern eras kicked off by uh Mencken and Ashman uh the team of and then followed by guys like Phil Collins and more recently Lin-Manuel Miranda some really good big names in there so it'll be interesting to see what we have 
But let's talk about our unlisted songs. You know, just piggybacking on what you were saying about criteria, you know, one of the uh, quotes I pulled from Walt himself was, we should set a new pattern, a new way to use music. Weave it into the story so somebody just doesn't burst into song, which was kind of revolutionary back in the 30s. You know, the, the, the whole idea of using the music to advance the story. So I, I think that's that's an important part of, of how we all went about it. Uh, but getting to the unlisted part, you know, we talked about this beforehand. This is where I start encouraging people to write cards and letters. Um, three of the songs you will not hear uh, on my list are uh, Hi Ho <laughs> from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, the music written by Paul Dukas for The Sorcerer's Apprentice. The, the Mickey Mouse segment of uh, Fantasia. And you will not hear Let It Go on my list. Uh, I think there are stronger songs. And quite frankly, I liked it better when it was Defying Gravity and Wicked. You and I are going to have issues here. But you don't have a daughter. <laughs> I Maybe an imaginary. No. <laughs> I have a I have a puppy. Well, telling a puppy to let it go has entirely different meanings. Yeah, uh, very true. You know, even if each Disney film only had one hit song, that would be tough. But so many of them are just loaded with multiple hits. You know, Mary Poppins, Jungle Book, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Lion King, Hercules, Frozen. They all have multiple songs. And so... And all good songs, too. So it was really hard. Um, but some of the songs that won't be on my list also include Hi Ho uh, from Snow White uh, and Oscar winners. Can you feel the love tonight from The Lion King and the title song from Beauty and the Beast? Beauty and the Beast sung by the always popular and one of my personal favorites, Angela Lansbury. So our unlisted lists match up. Um, and I made the prediction before we went on that this was going to be our most, most varied list. I'm setting the over under on songs that we have common on the list, not the same place, but just common songs on the list. I'm setting the over under at two and a half common songs. Wow. Okay. I'll take the over on that because even though I know what you're saying, you and I just have this, we have this uncanny ability to match up more than we think we're going to sometimes. So, uh, I'll even I'll even set the number at you can take the over. OK, yeah, I'll set the number at five. I, I think we're going to actually have five that match, but just probably way different seatings. Interesting. But anyway, we get to find that out with you as you start us off. Number 10. So my number 10 and just one other thing I did not choose. I chose only one song from a movie. So I wanted to spread the wealth a little bit. So my number 10 goes back to 1950. Uh, it is uh, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes from Cinderella, written by Mac David, Al Hoffman, and Jerry Livingston, uh, performed by Lean Woods. Uh, this is the song that kicked off the movie. Uh, it's where Cinderella encourages her friends in the forest to never stop dreaming. That theme continues through the film. And honestly, is there anything more Disney than dreams coming true? So I thought this was the perfect song to start the list. It's an iconic song. Uh, it's one that that is beloved in the Disney canon. To me, it is very uh, representative of what Disney is and strives to be and the image that's out there. So A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes from Cinderella is my number 10. Good choice. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I struggled long and hard with that one. It is not on my list, but it is one of the classic Disney themes uh, that song along with two others of the original old time princess quote unquote songs 
uh, are those things that they pipe in when you're walking through the castle, entering Fantasyland. You know, they are those Disney staples. That is definitely a strong choice. My number 10 is one of the more fun or hard titles to say, and that is Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious from Mary Poppins in 1964. Written by the Sherman Brothers, Richard and Robert Sherman, who were Disney's go-to guys uh, for writing music back in the day. Uh, I'm sure we will hear about their names uh, in reference at least a couple more times today. Uh, it's performed by Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke, two of my all-time favorite uh, performers and personalities. Um, and they are there with an animated pearly band, a Cockney pearly band, which is fun. It's live actors performing with animated actors. Um, Julie Andrews even tells people that the word is it's something to say when you have nothing to say. I've always kind of liked that uh, definition. It's fast. It's fun. It uh, kind of became an obsession with kids and family, you know, parents to say it and then try to say it backwards as Mary did in the movie. Uh, it's just one of those iconic songs. When you hear it, you know right where it comes from. Um, I'm, there was a story in uh, 2017. Dick Van Dyke was going to win a BAFTA award over in uh, Britain. And uh, he apologized to them ahead of time because he was going to have to do his acceptance speech. And he apologized for perhaps having the worst Cockney accent in the history of cinema in Mary Poppins. And uh, BAFTA replied, uh, well, that's okay. And we look forward to your acceptance speech and whatever accent you choose, no doubt it will be supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which I thought was a cute reply and very appropriate. So that's my number 10. I, in fact, have nothing to say because I'll be talking about supercalifragilisticexpialidocious a little bit later on in my list. Aha, there's one, one on our list. There's one. What is your number nine? Number nine. Number nine is from the 1953 film Peter Pan. And I think a lot of people would probably jump immediately to uh, uh, We Can Fly. But my choice is Second Star to the Right. Uh, it was written by Sammy Kahn and Sammy Fain, performed by the Judd Conlon Chorus. And, and that's one of the things that I think that really makes it unique is that this is the only song on the list, I believe, that is sung by a chorus, not an individual or a duo, um, which gives this a, a real ethereal quality, which served perfectly in the film as the kids entree into Neverland. Um, it's a textbook example of the really simply sweet songs that Disney does so well. It's a little bit of hope, a little bit of wonder, a little bit of magic. And it, it just is right down Broadway when it comes to what a Disney song should be. Uh, and in fairness, I only heard the film version of this, maybe a few years ago, I first became aware of the song when James Taylor did it for the compilation album, stay awake and his treatment of it, turning it into almost a lullaby really drew me to the song. And then when I heard the the soundtrack version, uh, it, 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 again, it, it brought up all of those, those kind of Disney esque feelings that, that sense of wonder and magic and hope. Uh, so it's always been a favorite song of mine. I think it's a terrific tune. Uh, so second start of the right for Peter Pan is my number nine. Yeah. I too think it's a superior song to, uh, you can fly, you can fly, which is a great song. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, second start oh, yeah. of the right is, the heart and soul of Peter Pan and its theme. James Taylor really had a, an album called stay awake. That's a risky choice. No, man. no, no. <laughs> there was a compilation album uh, okay. called stay awake where a whole bunch of people did Disney songs and his song was, was stay awake. I just can't imagine any, any record producer worth his salt saying, yeah, go ahead with name your album stay awake. That should sell really well. <laughs> 
Well, my number nine is uh, another, it's the first of the Disney princess songs uh, on my list. And uh, it's the movie itself. I'm indifferent about it. It's, it's a good film. I, I can take it or leave it. And that's Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas, 1995. It's an Oscar winner, and it's sung by a four-time Tony nominee in Judy Kuhn, and uh, she does a great job with it. Uh, it's definitely thematic of the movie. It's telling the whole story of setting the scene of what's the difference between the English uh, explorers and the Native Americans, as uh, Pocahontas shows John Smith uh, the value of the earth and it's living things. Uh, he learns to see things differently and starts to fall in love with her at the same time. Uh, it's a beautifully animated scene, beautiful song. Starts slow with more of a tribal feel and then builds almost as if all the elements of nature are building together in themselves. And I like it when the scene itself and the song are just so beautifully woven together. Uh, beautiful song, song of a lot of power. Well done, Colors of the Wind. Colors of the Wind did not make my list. Uh, I do think it is a good song. For me, it's a bit on the nose. If you go and just read the lyrics separately, it, it's a very, I, to me, they they really worked to get these lyrics to work. And it's just a little too on the nose for me. Um, there are other songs I like better. It, don't get me wrong. Again, good song, fun song, fit the movie very well. Um, and like a lot of the songs, I think, on both of our lists, I think these songs move the movie forward. They serve a purpose. It's not just, hey, let's put a, a, a number here for the sake of putting a number. These songs move the story along. Second Star to the Right was about the travel to Neverland. You know, Colors of the Wind, as you just said, really illustrated the the, the, the lessons that Pocahontas wanted to teach. So uh, it is a good song. It's a perfectly uh, Disney song. Just didn't make my list. Okay, well, what is on your list for the next slot? Number eight. My number eight could be the happiest song ever recorded for a Disney animated film. Uh, it was performed by Phil Harris and Bruce, Bruce Reitherman, and it is The Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book in 1967. It was written by Terry Gilkison. I hope I'm getting that last name right. And it is the only song in the film not written by the Sherman brothers, mm -hmm. who you mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, but interestingly enough, they kept the song. The song was kept at their request from an earlier version of the film that had been planned two or three years ahead of time. So not only could they write good music, they recognized good music. And they knew that this is a, a really fun, strong tune for uh, Jungle Book. Uh, the Phil Harris version is terrific. The Bill Murray version uh, from just a few years ago is is also a lot of fun. It was nominated for a Best Song Oscar. And again, in, in staying with the idea that it moves the story along or helps feed the story, it just taught the lesson of simple pleasures. And it was just a really cute, fun way of doing it in this movie. Uh, I think it represented the era, the late 60s, really well uh, also. Uh, so The Bare Necessities from Jungle Book is my number eight. Great song. My favorite song from one of my still to this day, one of my favorite Disney films. Love that song. Um, my number eight is it's animated, but it's a production number and it's a great production number. And it is be our guest from beauty and the beast from 1991. Also an Oscar nominee uh, and lost out to the title song beauty and the beast that year. It's performed by Jerry Orbach. Who a lot of people know from crime dramas and stuff like that on television, but he was an old Broadway guy uh, starting 42nd Street and many, many other uh, the Fantastics, many famous plays. 
Uh, he's Lumiere, and then Angela Lansbury, who we mentioned before, is Mrs. Potts. Uh, it is a big production number. It's performed uh, by the castle's enchanted staff uh, to brighten the spirits of the newly captive Belle uh, and against the strict orders of their boss, the Beast. It's big, it's fun, it's layered, and it just builds. It's kind of shot like an old Hollywood or Broadway musical uh, show-stopping number. It's charming, memorable, and you see it and you hear it all over the place still. And once it gets inside your head, it can stick there. It's a great, catchy tune. It's a wonderful visual. It's very effective for the movie, and I've always loved it. Be our guest, my number eight. Were you reading my notes? Because you said almost exactly everything I was going to say about that film, but just a little bit later on, it's a little higher on my list. I've got a few more things to add, but I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, the, the whole the whole Broadway feel that a lot of these, you know, Renaissance era animations from Disney took on. This really had that to it. And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, when I get to it a little higher on my list. Perfect. But what is next on your list? Number seven. My number seven is a song that has defined the last 80 years for Disney in a lot of ways. And that is Someday My Prince Will Come from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1938. Written by Frank Churchill and Larry Morey. Uh, performed by a teenage Adriana Casalotti. Uh, legend has it that Walt was actually on the phone to her father lamenting the fact he couldn't find a, a singer that sounded like a teenage girl that the daughter grabbed the phone, this Adriana grabbed the phone, spoke to Walt, and that was her audition. She ended up getting the job and singing the role. AFI called this the 19th greatest song in film history. Uh, as I mentioned before, it set the stage for generations of songs and movies and, you know, ancillarily theme parks and ice shows and stage shows to come. And it, it's one of the first uh, examples of, of what is called the I Want Songs in Disney films. And that's not, that's not a, a pejorative definition. It's, it's these songs that, that allow the characters to say, this is what I want and sets the stage for what's to come in the movie. Uh, and it, it is an absolute definition of an, I want, I want my prince to, to, to arrive so I can be with him and start my happy life. Uh, it's a beautiful song. It, it really captured the tone of 1938 in this movie very well. Uh, I think Disney has, has reaped the rewards of it for years. Um, and it's, again, it's just a terrific song and you can't hear it without picturing yourself in the park or as you mentioned before, walking through the castle. So number seven, someday my prince will come. Yeah, it definitely is another one of those songs that you hear walking through the castle. It's, a, it's of the two or three regular ones. Um, Great song, and this this song right here is one of the three that I mentioned was on my list as of last night and just got moved off. So uh, I think highly of it. The uh, the actress, the young actress you're talking about, she lived uh, in Larchmont Village in Los Angeles for years and years, and she had a wishing well out in front of her uh, house that just was there for decades, and so she had always loved her experience, kept the identification with the character, and. Uh, had a little wishing well in her yard and uh, people that pass by may not have known, but if you did know the story, then you went, ah, there it is. There she is. It's great. That's very cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah and if you're going to have one or just a couple of roles, being Snow White's not a bad one to put on your resume. Yeah. <laughs> Number one in the resume is a teenager, Snow White in Walt Disney's classic. Yep. Not bad. Um, my number seven. Um, 
this, <laughs> we laugh about this at home because my son uh, was taking an interest, uh, my youngest son, in this list a little bit because he grew up with uh, the newer genre of Disney songs. And uh, he was really pitching uh, the song Shiny from Moana to me. And it's like, that's what the, the villain crab sings it. And, you know, if you're going to have uh, a song sung by a crab, it's not that one. It's got to be Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid, 1989. An Oscar winner uh, sung by uh, Samuel E. Wright as Sebastian the Crab, uh, written by Mencken and Ashman, as we talked about before. Uh, it's where Sebastian is explaining to Ariel, because uh, she just got done with her once song, her wish song, and he's explaining to her how she really has it great by living in the ocean. She doesn't need to go live in the land of the humans on, on land. Uh, she has a wonderful current life. She doesn't need more. And it too, like be our guest is another big production number. And to be quite honest, I really could have switched either be our guest or under the sea on either of these two spots. I love them both. And they're done in a similar style, big production number. And it's really well, this one starts, it's got a Calypso and kind of reggae style and it just keeps growing and growing undeniably catchy melody. Uh, the film is filled with wonderful songs. And I think this is one of the best uh, under the sea little mermaid. And so far you are correct on the over under prediction. Cause I will talk about under the sea a little bit later on as it's a little higher on my list. Hmm. Well, by my count, we are at four matches already. And uh, that's cause I haven't told you about one of them. Here we go. <laughs> Let's move on. What's your number six? Number six. Number six uh, begins a section of my list that that really delves into, again, that the, this era that's called the Renaissance of Disney animation, starting with The Little Mermaid uh, in 1989 and then just hit after hit after hit. And the common thread with with these films was Alan Menken. Um, and the song I put at number six is A Whole New World from Aladdin, uh, 1992, uh, written by Alan Menken and Tim Rice. Uh, this was the third consecutive Oscar for Menken for Best Original Song. He won it three out of four years. Uh, the single went to number one. That was by Peebo Bryson and Regina Bell. The movie version was Brad Kane and Lea Salonga. And it, it really is just a wonderful duet. Uh, it won the Best Song Oscar and the Best Song Grammy in the same year. I think it's the only time that Disney's ever done that. And it's also unique in the fact that as it does set the stage, we talked a little bit about that. It's got that that big production number feel as we get into these movies that do have more of a Broadway feel to them. But it also does double duty as both the movie's theme song and as the love song. So it really fits to it, it, you know, it fits in two slots very nicely, and and really is 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 a, a great table setter for the film. Uh, and one could also argue too; it's probably launched more karaoke duets than Summer Lovin'. So uh, you know, it, it's got that place in the karaoke hall of fame as well. Uh, I'm not crazy about Aladdin as a film overall, uh, but there's some great music in it. Um, obviously, the Robin Williams song, uh, and you know, Whole New World, great tunes. The Robin Williams songs. He's got a couple of great ones in uh, Friend Like Me and uh, Prince Ali. Friend Like Me. That's that's the song I was trying to think of. Uh, but uh, Whole New World just to me was the was the the uh, the showpiece song in this movie. Uh, it deserved to be on the list. And so it's there at number six for me. This is one of the other a trio of songs that was on my list as of last night and went off. It is a great song. Um, I think <laughs> your karaoke mentioned it plays a little bit in 
me taking it off the list that I think um, I'm just maybe getting a little tired of it, which then tells me that maybe its legs aren't as strong as a couple other things that I did put on my list, but very worthy. And if we ever go back and do, you know, one of our revisiting our list, it may be the thing that I say, yeah, I should have kept it on. I don't know. It's a great song, uh, but it will not be appearing on my list. My number six is uh, the second appearance of a Mary Poppins song um, written by, once again, the Sherman Brothers, and that is Chim Chim Cherie, an Oscar winner performed again by uh, Dick Van Dyke, who takes more of the lead in this one, and Julie Andrews as well, where she sang Supercalifragilistic, or most of it. He takes the big lead on this. This song was inspired by one of the drawings created by the film screenwriter, uh, Don DeGrati, uh, and the Sherman brothers took an interest to it. And he explained the folklore attributed to the whole chimney sweep, uh, thing in England and how shaking hands with a chimney sweep could be considered good luck. Uh, so they were really taken by that and they wanted to bring that folklore into it. And they came up with a beautiful, great song. Uh, it is a, well, it, it's kind of two songs almost. Uh, it starts with a standard version, which Bert sings to the children, but then it comes back a few times during the movie in little smaller snippets uh, at different times as Bert just kind of sings to himself uh, with new verses that are specific to the new parts of the plot that are unfolding. Uh, so it has a magical, mysterious quality to it. It is kind of the overriding theme music of Mary Poppins itself, and uh, it's done really well. And uh, I love it. Always have loved it. And uh, that's my number six, Chim Chim Cherie. You know, at the end of the day, we could do a, an episode on just the top 10 songs in Mary Poppins, to be quite honest, yeah, it's, because it's loaded. There's the two that we've already mentioned, there's Feed the Birds, there's Spoonful of Sugar. I mean, the list goes on and on. Go Fly a Kite. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on and on. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it, that Mary Poppins was one of the first movies I ever saw as a kid that I that I recollect. Mm -hmm. And the, the images of the chimney sweeps up on the rooftop or Mary flying. You know, or, or the, 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 the melancholy, bittersweet feeling of Feed the Birds have stuck with me for, you know, almost 60 years now. And it, it's all about the music. It was all about the music. Yeah, and great So dance. I completely agree with your, your choices. I just, like I said, I want to spread the wealth a little bit more. Yeah, there's Jolly Holiday when she does that great dance with the animated penguins, which is fantastic. The, the chimney sweep dance comes off the song Step in Time, uh, builds off of that, which is another yes. fun song. Not a great song, but a fun song and a wonderful dance number. So, yeah, we could talk about that one forever. Great, great movie. Let's move on. We're getting into the top five. What is your number five? Number five. My number five is one of the songs that you mentioned a little earlier, uh, and that is from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Be Our Guest. Uh, all the things you talked about before, written by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, performed by Jerry Orbach and Angela Lansbury. And it was, you know, again, in Broadway parlance, the show-stopping number. You know, it, it, the first thing I thought about when I, when I saw the scene was, this feels like what a Busby Berkeley number would look like if it was animated. Um, it even actually kind of calls back to a little bit of the avant-garde approach of Fantasia. It, it was reminiscent of that for me as well. Uh, it was unique. It had that magical feel to it. As you mentioned, it kind of sets the stage for all of the, yes, magic to be experienced in, in the, in the beast's castle. Uh, it's upbeat. It, it, it builds, uh, 
it's a catchy tune. Again, Disney has now leveraged it across the parks and in a number of ways and advertising and restaurants and all the different ways that they can. And you're still not tired of it. So to your point, it still has legs. Um, it, it's just, you know, again, you can go down the, 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 the list of songs from Beauty and the Beast, and there's so many of them. So, you know, Kirk, how did you leave off Bell? How did you leave off Beauty and the Beast? You know, how'd you leave off? How'd you leave off? How'd you leave off? But for me, Be Our Guest is is the 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 showstopper. It is the the one song you hang your hat on from this movie. So Be Our Guest is my number five. Yeah, it's it's a great song. Uh one of the better songs from that movie. Be uh Beauty and the Beast, the title song is fantastic, but it's simple. It's beautiful. There's nothing that really sets it apart. You know, it's setting this story of what we already know at this point. I can't criticize it, but I think other songs stand out better in that movie. Agreed. Good choice. My number five is the opening song for The Lion King, and that is The Circle of Life. Uh, Oscar nominated. uh, Did not win, (laughs) surprisingly. Um can you feel the love tonight won the Oscar that year? Hakuna Matata was also nominated, but I would make the argument that the circle of life is the most important of the three, uh, written by Elton John and Tim Rice, who used to be, uh, paired up with, uh, Howard Menken, uh, sung by, uh, Carmen Twilley and, uh, Lebo M. It's a, it's a beautiful piece. Uh, it starts off with the, the native Zulu language vocals of the male vocalist and the choir, uh, then it goes into the main narrative vocals and melody sung, sung by Carmen Twilley. Uh, it describes the whole theme of the entire movie uh, while painting a picture of the balance of all of the living creatures in Africa and the, the harmony of, of how it works there. Uh, it's stirringly powerful and it's soulful. It's descriptive of its time and place, uh, and it's entirely memorable. Uh, probably should have won the Oscar that year, in my opinion. It's just a, it's just a powerful song. There's another great video that people can look up, and it's uh, the traveling cast of the Broadway show of The Lion King. And they're on a plane headed for, I believe, Australia, if memory serves. And they're just kind of stuck on the taxiway waiting for clearance to take off. So they start singing The Circle of Life in acapella, and it's great. And they're all sitting there toward the front of the plane and watching the reaction of the rest of the passengers. Like At first, like, what's happening? Is this guy singing and in the native Zulu tongue. Uh, and then they all start joining in and people are just mesmerized. It's, it's really cool. It's, an, it's worth another look. So that's my number five circle of life. And again, I will be talking about this song a little bit later on my list because you have it way too low, way too low. My friend, it jump positions three times. <laughs> uh, it is great, but uh, I like the four songs that I have above it better, but let's move on. We're into Mount Rushmore territory. Number four. All right. Getting to my Mount Rushmore, my top four. Number four for me is, again, another song. Most of the songs I'm going to talk about now are ones you've already mentioned because they're in their proper locations here on Mount Rushmore. Uh, Is from Mary Poppins, and it is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I was never so proud in all my life when I was a little boy when I finally pronounced that word. I worked on it for like a year and a half, and it just made me the the proudest guy in the world. My mom looked at me and said, yep, you got it. It was awesome. Uh, Performed by Julie Andrews, as you mentioned, uh, going back to the AFI Top 100 list. uh, They call it the 36th greatest song in film history. For me, it's a perfectly balanced song for the film injecting a little bit of whimsy and a little bit of magic into the phrase 
and into everyday life. It, it really is a microcosm of the film in general. Uh, I, it, it's, it's, it's happy. It's joyful. You can't say the word without feeling a little bit better and putting a pep in your step. Uh, you can't think about that scene and the kids trying to keep up with her without putting a smile on your face. Uh, so for me, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious really is Mary Poppins you know, in a bottle. If you bottled Mary Poppins, that's what you'd get is this song. Uh, so that's why it's at number four on my list. And that is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I did it, mom. Say it backwards. Can't do it, can you? No, I cannot. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> Neither can I. Thanks. Thanks for making me feel good about my accomplishments, Steve. <laughs> it's good to have those small term goals when you're a kid. You did very well, Kirk. Great, great song. Maybe a little too high, but good song. My number four is, again, from The Little Mermaid. No nominations for this, uh, and I just don't know why. And it was part of your world. Uh, written by Mencken and Ashman, as we mentioned a few times, performed by Jody Benson. Sometimes Disney songs, uh, you know, they become hallmarks due to situation, spectacle, emotional content. This one is more of a poetic storytelling that hits a little emotional things, but it's just beautifully done, beautifully blended song. It's a great balance of spoken and sung lyrics, uh, as Ariel tells us about her life stream. As you mentioned before, it's one of those want songs, but it's, it's more than that. It, tons of sincerity and passion in this song. Uh, we feel her wants and wishes. Uh, we become totally invested and start pulling for her from that moment. Uh, she becomes us, we become her, we, and for the rest of the journey, we are there together. And it's really because of this song. Uh, it's beautifully crafted, the, it's beautifully drawn, uh, and we just get what she's after. It's a poetic storytelling uh, and great character development. Arguably the best of the Disney Princess songs, uh, in my estimation. It's not necessarily the most powerful, but it's just really well done and very well crafted. So that's my number four, Part of Your World by... The Little Mermaid. As you like to say, I'm going to pull a Steve and say that this song was actually on my list until I think this morning um, when I swapped it for another another song from Little Mermaid, which I just think is a, a tiny bit stronger. Uh, but you're right. It, it is terrific. It's all the things we've talked about. It sets the stage. It tells a story. It moves the plot along. It helps you go on the journey with Ariel because now you understand what she's going after. Uh, and, and it's just a great song as well. So I, I completely understand why you have it on there. I almost had it on there and, and quite high on my list. Uh, but, but, uh, it is not on my list. Um, but my little mermaid song is next. Ooh, what is it? Number three. You had mentioned it a little bit earlier. It is Under the Sea from Little Mermaid, uh, 1989, again, written by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. And I don't think it can be understated how much importance this soundtrack had to the fortunes of Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Company, not just animation or films, for the past 30 years. The song won the, the Oscar, I believe, for, for Best Original Song, and it broke a 22-year dry spell. Between your song, Tim Chimney, and Under the Sea, there were 22 years, which which I think everybody, especially Disney files, can agree were pretty fallow years 
for for the animation group. There's even talk about shuttering animation or, or farming it out a little bit more. That you know, this is what resulted in Oliver and Company and the Black Cauldron and and you know, some films are that aren't as memorable. Uh, but then you get this powerhouse soundtrack, Alan Mink and Howard Ashman. They bring this Broadway sensibility to to these films that they're doing, and they just create these these songs that tell stories, evoke imagery, serve the plot and are entertaining all at once. And this was one of those songs. It is unbelievably infectious. Uh, Samuel Wright just did a terrific job, Uh, but I could have easily picked Kiss the Girl. I could have easily picked Part of Your World. Again, it's just a treasure trove of songs. Uh, But I went with Under the Sea. I I think it it really serves the movie uh, wonderfully well. Uh, It is a little bit more memorable to me than Part of Your World, so that's why it's at my number three. You know, I like it. It's a great song. Uh, I just um, I just had a little lower. Uh, you're talking about that dead period for Disney. Uh, it's funny because there were some movies that had at least one good, really good song that could have been nomination worthy or whatever. Uh, Oliver and Company had one. Uh, Fox and the Hound had one. Robin Hood had one. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's a little surprising that um, they didn't get any play <laughs> during that time. But I think it's just because the movies didn't garner a lot of respect or attention themselves. Good choice. Uh, my number three is one that you mentioned earlier that you had way, 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 way too low. Most of the songs that we've been talking about are big, powerful numbers, whether they're the production numbers that we talk about or these big soaring solos of these want songs or the thematic heart of the movies. This song is none of that as far as the power of the spectacle. It is The Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book. Uh, As Kirk mentioned, Oscar nominated. Uh, And I love the fact that it's the one song that the Sherman Brothers did decide to keep. As you said, it shows their respect and their recognition for what is a good song. Uh, Phil Harris sings it. He plays Baloo the Bear. Uh, He was also Thomas O'Malley, the the alley cat from uh, the Aristocats. Um, This song lost to Dr. Doolittle's Talk to the Animals. And in hindsight, you're going, wow, this song is so superior to that in my estimation. Talk to the Animals is a nice song, but it just doesn't hold up as well. One of the reasons I love this so much is The Jungle Book was Disney's first feature employing the technique of animating um, their characters with some of the physical characteristics of the voice actor. And that's what they did with Blue the Bear. He has some of the facial structure characteristics of Phil Harris. It was also Walt Disney's last film. Uh, He passed away before the premiere, so he never got to see it. And part of the reason was, as you mentioned, there was an earlier version of the script that had to be retooled, new songs brought in, which delayed the process a little bit. Um, It's a perfect character intro for Baloo the Bear, who is one of the three main characters of the movie. And it builds the story and the bond between him and Mowgli. And we know why Mowgli wants to stay in the jungle, doesn't want to be join the man village. Uh, it's beloved to this day. It's fun. It's easy, carefree, paints a picture of the good life that Mowgli could have in the jungle and that Baloo and Bagheera and the others do have in the jungle. It's charming, fun, contagious, great, great song. I think it's one of their very best. It's memorable. It is one of those Disney themes, the bare necessities. Great choice. Way too high. The song's also a little too high. No, it's not. Um, but again, you know, we, we can put all these songs on a piece of paper in a box, shake it up, pull them out, put them in that random order, and we'd be right. I mean, the, you can't go wrong with so many of these songs, but you apparently can. 
yeah, the importance of the song and the importance of the Jungle Book, what it meant to the style of Disney animation and the way they were proceeding is it's it's important. It's 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 big. Let's move on. What is your numero dos? Number two. My number two is the last of the songs you've already mentioned. Uh, it is the Circle of Life from The Lion King. I think it's unquestionably the opening sequence of Lion King is the most spectacular visual sequence opening sequence of any Disney animated film. And this song more than matches the visual impact. Keep in mind, there's no dialogue in the beginning of this film. It is simply the images that we see and the song that is being played. And from that, we understand everything that's going to unfold for us for the next couple of hours. And I defy you to put the song on on headphones, close your eyes and not picture the red sunset. Not picture everybody gathering at Pride Rock. It is, again, using that Broadway vernacular, it is that large opening moment. And if you've ever seen the the Broadway play, they literally lift it, you know, movement by movement, note for note. I mean, it is the exact same thing. It, it is the it is to me the greatest intersection of of Broadway and animation, you know, on film. Uh, again, Elton John, Tim Rice, top of their game. I also like the fact that that it has transcended just the movie. The phrase circle of life is now part of our vernacular. It, it is something that that lives on in more than just the song from this movie. It has greater meaning to people. And I think that's an important aspect of this film as well. And I also think it's it's wonderful that during the 2016 baseball season, Johannes Cespit has used this song as his walk up song when he was with the Mets. So it can serve a number of purposes as well. So Circle of Life, powerful song, and it is my number two. Cespedes should have used I Can't Hit the Circle Change for you baseball fans out there. You trying to tell me that Jesus Christ can't hit a curveball? <laughs> Whoops, we just regressed back to episode one. It, that's the Circle of Life. Ooh, point well made. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, this this was part of my restructuring of numbers two, three, four, and five on my list last night. Uh, they were bouncing all over the place. There was probably eleven different <laughs> versions of that's mathematically possible. Uh, good movie. Hard to argue with what you said. Uh, I love the thing that I read about Tim Rice, uh, who was known and made his name working with Andrew Lloyd Webber on Jesus Christ Superstar and many other big projects for Broadway, and. Tim Rice was blown away about how fast Elton John composes music that Rice would come up with these wonderful lyrics and he would hand I read that too. Yeah. He hand them over and he'd expect that he would mold them over and then start bending and shaping things. And then he said, literally within a few days, boom, there it was. <laughs> He's like, wow. <laughs> so yeah, great, great pairing between those two. Okay. My number two is, uh, it's, a song that Kirk already mentioned is not on his list and I'm just not quite sure why, because it is a great song. It's a powerful song. And that is from frozen in 2013, the song, let it go an Oscar winner sung by Indina Menzel, a Tony winner. Uh, she played Elsa. Uh, it's kind of the new standard for the modern era of Disney music. Um, it's a beautiful song. It just starts with a piano 
almost uh, like icicles and snowfall. And then it leads to one of the better builds of music from the Disney movies. It builds into that strong thing and takes the power of Indina Menzel's voice, which kind of is matching what's happening with Elsa as she's unleashing her power and starting to turn the world around her into her new frozen kingdom. Um, it's amazing computer animation uh, as we see her transform this uh, this forest into her new residence and it's beautifully done it is a good piece of music i know it's easy to make the connection with her from her days in wicked the separation between the two wasn't that big and it's just because her voice is so recognizable and it's just that powerful and that strong and that good as a song uh it's built into its zenith the song itself finishes just by closing off just kind of the way that elsa is closing herself off to the rest of the world uh, and launches us into the second half of the story. It is the bridge that takes us into the second half of the movie. It's an important song within the movie. It's a big song, musically sound, won the Oscar. That's my number two. Let it go. I can't let it go. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm having some fun, not obviously putting it on my list, but I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I just think the song is a little bit more lightweight and will not have the legs that some of the songs that we've talked about, uh, on the uh, on the list already, uh, I could be wrong. I could be very wrong, and it wouldn't surprise me if I'm wrong. I'm I'm very good at being wrong, but it just for me, it 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 there's nothing about it that stands out. It, it's like a, a a a a B average across the board. Yes, it serves the movie. Yes, it it has a powerful voice. It just it just doesn't work for me. <sighs> Kirk, Kirk, Kirk. I think you will find as time does go on that it does have legs. I think we'll hold up just fine. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it on our 20th anniversary show and you'll go Kirk. <laughs> you were so right. Yeah. So once again, let me talk to the viewers about our new viewer mail section. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're at the point where we recap our 10 through twos. Uh, my 10 through twos started with a uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious from Mary Poppins. Number nine was colors of the wind from Pocahontas. Number eight was be our guest. Uh, number seven, Under the Sea. Number six, Chim Chim Cheri, also from Mary Poppins. Number five was The Lion King's The Circle of Life. Number four, Little Mermaid's Part of Your World. Number three, The Wonderful, The Awesome, The Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book. And number two was Let It Go from Frozen. Kirk, what about yours? Starting with number 10, Cinderella's A Dream is a Wish Your Heart make, Makes. Number nine, The Second Star to the Right from Peter Pan. The Jungle Book's Bare Necessities was number eight. Someday My Prince Will Come from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was number seven. Whole New World from Aladdin uh, was number six. Number five, Be Our Guest from Beauty and the Beast. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, number four. Under the Sea from Little Mermaid, number three. Circle of Life from The Lion King is number two. Well, and by my count, we have one, two, three, four, five matches on our lists, just not in the same spots. Not in the same spots, and my guess is... We might have one more. We're going to match number one. <laughs> yeah. So with with the appropriate drum roll and fanfare, Kirk, what is your number one? Number one. Much like Barry Sanders in the Heisman discussion was the clear far and away winner. For me, at least, the clear far and away best Disney song 
of all time is When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio, 1940. Uh, written by Lee Harline and Ned Washington. It was performed by Cliff Edwards with his perfectly quavery voice as Jiminy Cricket. Uh, AFI called it the seventh greatest song in film history. It was the first Disney song to win an Oscar. Uh, these are the objective descriptions of it. Uh, but it has become something that embodies and defines the entire Disney experience. It has transcended the movie and has become part of the great American songbook. I read a quote that said it set the gold standard for Disney songs that transcended the reasons they were commissioned and in the context in which they should be heard. They grew larger than life. They grew bigger than the movies that they were in. Uh, my favorite, I'm going to leave some for you to talk about because I'm, I'm assuming that you have the same song. Yeah, I certainly do. Uh, yep. So that puts us at six songs that we matched. But <laughs> I, I thought it was really interesting that Brian Wilson said that this was the song that inspired him to write Little Surfer Girl. And if you think about it, Little Surfer, Little One. And then When You Wish Upon. I mean, it's a lot of that same mm -hmm. rhythmic and some of the same notes, you know, that, that, that builds into that. So I just thought that was really interesting and tells me that that's a song that over the generations continues to be relevant and important to musicians and to, to audiences as well. Yeah, it is. It is the Disney theme. It is. Cliff Edwards does a great job. He was a, one of Disney's favorite guys. He's in other Disney movies singing smaller parts in, in other films, but this is the one that he'll be known for. Um, it, what I like about this song also, it serves as the bookends for the movie Pinocchio. Uh, we hear it over the opening credits and we hear it in the final scene. Uh, so it wraps up everything that the movie's about very nicely with the bookends, as Disney tends to do sometimes. When Disney does projects that are important to them, they use this song as their emotional connective theme. They want you to think Disney when you hear this song. And you do. It's it is their hallmark. Well, let's be let's be honest. They use this song for even things that are not that important. <laughs> they use it a lot. It has become their corporate theme. But, you know, when they really want to make a point and they really want to say this is Disney and what we're talking about here is important. This is their go to. Yes. They, they use it in a lot of things. Like you said, they use it in fireworks. They use it in the Fantasmic show on TV specials. They do use it a lot. But I would say that they use it well. They don't overuse it to where it has become overly saturated in a weekend. It's a, it's a great song. Um, other performers have covered it like Billy Joel, Linda Ronstadt, Beyonce, uh, and, and Dina Menzel. Uh, so it's, it's just one of those great pieces of music that other performers recognize and they love to sing it much like over the rainbow and some other monumental, great movie, movie songs. So I can't argue with your choice because it's my choice too. <laughs> it's when you wish upon a star. And, it, you know, it, and it's also one of those songs that when you do hear it in the context where Disney use it and it uses it in other projects, when you do hear that, it's almost Pavlovian. You know, you're going to get something that they think is important or you that is going to be quality or that you're looking forward to. It's just that it, it, it's, it, it, it gets you excited to see what's coming next after you hear it. Exactly. Well, good list. Uh, we did have a few more that match, as I suspected we might, but uh, we covered a lot of different uh, generations and decades uh, because that's what Disney does, and they've been strong and great for a long time. Let's move to Unlisted Part B. Now that we've reviewed our list, 
What are uh, some of those honorable mentions? Those ones that almost made your list. Well, I, you know, we, we, we mentioned a couple of them already. Chim Chim Cheri, part of your, if I was going to double up on certain movies, uh, that yeah. was, that was, you know, one way to go about it. There's a song called Baby Mine from Dumbo. Yeah. I mean, it's a two minute piece of music that is just so sweet and so beautiful, but it breaks your heart. Yep. I mean, it, it is one of the most difficult scenes to watch. And I shouldn't take anything away from the song because of that, but but it does. It, it just, it's, you know, you, you can watch it maybe once every 10 years. And each time you do, you go, oh, that's right. That's why I don't watch this because it just <laughs> breaks your heart. It is so sweet. It is so loving. It is so tender. And, and I, I, you know, it, it may be one of those that I want to find a place for on the list next time around, because you talk about a film that or a song that does exactly what it is supposed to in a Disney film. And it is baby mine. Yeah. Baby mine and love is a song. The theme from Bambi are two of those songs that are these yeah. emotional, rich, big <laughs> connective tissue <laughs> songs that, yeah, they were, they were tough to leave off. Um, we talked a little about a uh, Robin Williams song, a friend like me that came very close for me. Uh, just great character development, great story uh, pusher. I also like Disney's occasional songs that they give to the villains themselves. And two of those are poor unfortunate souls from uh, little mermaid and Gaston from uh, beauty and the beast, both great, great songs that be prepared from the lion King is another one that comes to mind. But they do this from time to time. Cruella DeVille. Yeah, which she doesn't sing, though. It's sung about her. Um, uh, but yeah, it's about the villain. But they sometimes give the villain their song yeah. to move along their point of view. And uh, they do it very well. Um, the Gospel Truth from Hercules. I love this song. It's sung by the Muses. Muses. It's very much like the three backup singers in A Little Shop of Horrors, uh, since this is another Mencken production. But... The harmonies are great. They tell the narrative, the story, and they're just really, really good singers, and it's really good music. So uh, all those things almost made my list, along with A Whole New World and Zippity Doodah from Song of the South. Rick, that was on my list as of last night. Yeah, that that's a tough one to talk a little bit about, given the context of the film and and such. And and honestly, yeah. I think there are 10 better songs, the ones that I listed. But but yeah, I mean, as we talked about at the top of the show, embarrassment of riches when, with this category. And that's why I thought we'd have more variety than we did. Uh, but I'm glad to see that we we agreed on on most. And and, you know, we're going to work on that other one for you. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing what the listeners say a little later on the show when we uh, yeah. talk about the populist. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that uh, does it for us on the first half. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we'll have more fun for you. Be right back. Okay. Show of hands. Do you stick around for the credits at the end of a movie or a TV show? You might. But most folks don't. And even then, you might not be familiar with half the jobs on there. My name is Bruce Rand Berman. When I came out to L.A. a while back, I found there was a lot more to this industry than I realized. With the help of some great friends and mentors along the way, I've been able to chart my course to where I am today. An experienced television producer doing a podcast about all the different jobs there are in Hollywood and how to get them. So check out Call Time on your favorite podcast platform. You'll hear all about the industry straight from the mouths of the real people who work hard every day and night in the trenches on set and in the office. 
Yeah, this is my podcast, but it's your call time. Don't be late. Hello. Wait, what? You haven't heard the new podcast, Mojo Girl Madness? Good news. Season one is now available for binging. Mojo Girl Madness is a mad pod with interviews, rants, and stories about sex, relationships, family, divorce, politics, showbiz, and mostly your mojo. Find Mojo Girl Madness wherever you get your pods or at mojogirlmadness.com. And now, back to the main event. Love you madly. And we're back, and that means it's time for... The Guest List! And today our special guest is Chris Ledesma. He is a music editor of film and TV. He attended the California Institute of the Arts as well as the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Uh, He's edited many films, including Pure Country, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, as well as the Emmy Award-winning television show Gypsy, starring Bette Midler and War and Remembrance. Oh, yeah. And he also is the only music editor that the award-winning television show The Simpsons has ever known. That's over 32-plus seasons and over 700-plus episodes of consistent work, which is virtually unheard of in this business. Uh, He's composed the music for uh, the episode Grampy Can You Hear Me uh, and was nominated for a Golden Reel Award for his music editing on the episode Wild Bart's Can't Be Broken. He's even conducted the L.A. Philharmonic for part of the tribute concert honoring Simpsons composer Alf Clausen. He's an all-around good guy, very good at what he does, and the perfect man to be our guest today. It is Chris Ledesma. Hey, Chris, welcome. Hey, Steve. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Chris, it's good to see you again. Kirk, hey, nice to see you after uh, a number of years that uh, since we've been together. We used to spend every day together, but... Not so much yes, lately. Yes, we did. <laughs> Sitting backwards and talking at people with blank stares. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, no, it's a shark. Um, <laughs> the, as we refer to the good old days. Yep. Um, so, Chris, uh, as a music editor, uh, you're very involved with the whole process uh, between the uh, the composer, the director, the uh, the uh, film editor, and yourself on how that – how does that relationship work? Uh, what is the – the give and the take, the the ins and the outs of that that uh, foursome. Right. Uh, I'll try to I'll try to make it you know quick and and easy. Um, one thing, let me, right away, it's going to sound like a plug, but it'll help. I have a blog <laughs> that I started years ago about uh, working on The Simpsons, and it and there are pages that go into much more detail about exactly what my job is and music editing, and it goes through all the steps. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. But anyway. Basically, it's this. When people ask me this, what often happens is they'll come up to me and they'll say, oh, you're the music editor on so-and-so, so you write the music for the show? And I immediately, nope, I'm not the composer. Although I do get to compose once in a while, but that's not my primary job. So my, my quick and easy answer is there are two people primarily in charge of getting the score off the ground and on the screen. That's the composer and the music editor. And in the simplest terms, the composer is the creative person, dreams it up, composes it, and realizes the music. And the 
music editor is the technical person. Make sure all of the technical I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Make sure that the music is in sync with the picture. Make sure that the music is properly placed in the picture where we wanted it to go. Make sure that it's properly balanced against the dialogue and the sound effects, that you hear the music when you want to hear it, and it gets out of the way when you don't want to have it stepping on dialogue or whatever. So my job is a technical job. The composer's job is the creative job. As far as my relationship with the various people, that all depends. My job is also kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's a little hard in, in our business, the business of show, <laughs> to make any sort of long-term <laughs> living, right? Because you just go from project to project to project. But the thing about this is, is like, like for example, a director. Uh, a studio or a producer will hire a director based on their resume and their experience and whatever they bring to the party. They will hire a writer. They will hire an actor. They will hire an art director, et cetera, et cetera. And they will hire a composer. They will not hire a music editor. A music editor is part of the composition team. So I have to ingratiate myself with composers and then hope mm -hmm. that they get the gig. When they get the gig, I get the gig. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the things... There are so many stories I have that I, we don't have time for about why I'm the luckiest music editor in show business to be on a single show for 32 years and 700 episodes. But one of them, amongst all the others, is the very fact that when we switched composers, Richard Gibbs was our first composer on The Simpsons for season one, and then we switched to Alf Clausen in season two. Well, like I just said, the music editor is part of the composer's deal. One of the questions whenever they hire a composer is, so... Who's your orchestrator? Who's your recording engineer? Who's your music editor? You know, who's your team that we're going to assemble? Alf Clausen could have very easily, you know, he'd been, he just finished working for what, six, seven seasons on Moonlighting. So whoever he had music edited, you know, at Moonlighting, he could have just as easily said, that's my guy, but he didn't. He was kind enough and gracious enough to say, well, he says, we haven't worked together, but you've got a one-year head start on this show. You know the ups, the downs. Let's, you know, make it work. And we did for 27 years. So That's great. Now, does the director usually handle his notes and everything just primarily with the composer and the film editor? Or are they coming into your office and giving technical notes also, especially about placement and timing and maybe breaking things up and so forth? Well, obviously, everything everything is is directed at the composer, but for the most part, it goes through the music editor because the music editor is kind of like the gatekeeper of all things technical. And my dog is squeaking the toy. Stop squeaking the toy. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, the notes go through the music editor because the music the composer wants to concentrate and keep their focus on the creative. They don't want to keep their focus on the technical. So a lot of that falls, you know, so, so notes and everything. Yes, they go through the music editor to the composer so that then the composer gets what he or she needs and I am in the loop mm -hmm. so that everything, you know, is covered and, and works its way through. That's great. That's a, that's a really good uh, explanation. So after 700 episodes yep. and all the, all the seasons you've spent on the show, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it something that, that's interesting to come back to, right. you know, episode after episode, year after year. Well, for me, the one thing I've always recognized, and, and, and I have a, a, a great one-off one, one -off story to, to give you the contrast. 
one of the things that is so wonderful about working on The Simpsons, apart from the people and the thing, right, is is this, is that it's a very funny comedy show. So I spend a good deal of my time laughing and in a, and in good spirits and in a good mood to be a part of the show. So that is invaluable to me. And my one-off story to, to contrast that was long ago, I, I got hired to do a pilot of a show. I can't even remember the name of it or if it even went, but I do remember Ving Rames played the bad guy. And for television, and this wasn't HBO, this was, I think, going to go to NBC. He was a very bad guy in this show. And it every story point pointed to him being taken down in the third act. But by the fourth act, he got away with it. And now he was going to be the central character moving forward. And I really didn't like this guy. And I didn't <laughs> like the mood it made me feel because he was this bad guy. And I mean, and fortunately, the show didn't get picked up. But I was thinking, I've thought about this many times over the years. I say, I have the option of either working on a show like The Simpsons where I'm laughing and having a good time and it's all silliness and craziness. Or I could have had that feeling that I had in Act 4 of that pilot week after week. Uh, no, that was not pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> so... Can The Simpsons still surprise you after all this time? Absolutely. Okay, so it's it's your timing to ask this question couldn't be any better. I don't know if you have seen the internet revolving around The Simpsons this week, but our executive producer, Matt Selman, uh, is a genius in keeping the show in front of the public. On Sunday night, we aired an episode, and he posted on Twitter before the episode aired that the show was going to playfully reinterpret the Simpsons timeline by presenting Homer a story with Homer as a teenager in the 90s. Now, the show has stated long ago that Homer and Marge were teenagers in the 70s, and that's when they met. Mm -hmm. Plus, also, Marge got pregnant before they got married, and Bart was born, I guess, in the early 80s or very like 79, who knows? But the point is right around there. So now what's happened with Homer being a teenager in the 90s is that Bart is older than Homer. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the fans who are very into the canon of the show, many of their uh, heads exploded at the notion of that Homer can't be a teenager in the 90s. It's just not possible. To which Matt Selman preemptively, like I say, he wasn't responding to tweets. He proactively said this before the show aired. He said categorically, in his opinion, the show has no canon, that the timeline is elastic, that every episode is its own Groundhog Day, mm. and that we are just telling stories with these characters. And each story has a beginning, middle, and end, and then you put it away. And that's the end of it. Sure, why not? Yeah, I had never thought of it this way. And having read that and then thinking about it, I said, this was, this was genius of, of another level. Genius, just like I say, in, in terms of the publicity. Like I say, the inter just, <laughs> just put Simpsons into Google and you'll see this week. It's just, that's all anybody wants to talk about is Selman's tweets and, and the response to it. But more importantly, he has now, in my opinion, opened up 200 new stories that we could never tell if we had to religiously adhere to the canon. Mm -hmm. And he just categorically says, there is no canon. Get over it. <laughs> I, that's, a, that's a really brave statement. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I love it. I never thought of it before Sunday. And now that I've slept with it for five days or four days, I, I love the concept. That's great. Let's turn uh, back to all things Disney and Disney music. All right. Um, Chris, 
working in the industry and with, with music and film and everything, what does Disney music represent to you? And what do you think Disney's legacy is in regards to the music and their films and their place in, in Hollywood history? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about it in, in any terms that, that doesn't just sound overly, you know, just too flowery or, or too hyperbolic mm-hmm. or whatever. But no, Disney throughout the years has absolutely set the standard. Uh, I think Walt Disney really understood how music really can help um, tell stories, can help push stories farther, can help an emotional uh, beat uh, in a way that nothing else can. And and that being said, I will also say something that I have said about music myself, being a musician and a student of music and a practitioner and all these things. To me, music is the closest thing we have to actual magic. And again, that may sound like Fruit Loops kind of talk. No, I get it. But get it, it really is because think about it. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't taste it. It moves in the air in a mysterious way that you can't I mean, I guess with physics, we know about waves and so but But when you combine a violin and an oboe and a piano and a harp, you get a whole different thing than when you combine a trumpet with a timpani and a trombone. And the point is that when it all meshes just right and hits your ears just right, and you're in a particular mindset, you're moved to tears. You're moved to smile. You're moved to take a deep breath. It's amazing. Um, you should check out the, the on Disney Plus. There's a, um, a six or seven part documentary about the making of Frozen Two. Mm-hmm. But one of the episodes is about the creation of the the song uh, Into the Unknown, and when the producers and the director Jennifer Lee, I think her name, right, hear that score with the live orchestra for the first time on the scoring stage, she's literally she's choked up. She can't breathe. Mm-hmm. I can't think of of anything else that has that effect. I mean, yes, theater can move you, a book can move you, but like I say, but those are things you can you that, that have a tangible quality, other than the than the violinist bowing on the thing. But you know, like if you close your eyes, I think you you wouldn't get as much input from a, a play or a movie. You can't close your eyes and read a book, I guess, unless you're reading Braille. Mm-hmm. But you can close your eyes, and the music can speak to you. And and have this effect. It's like nothing else. So anyway, after that long pontification, <laughs> I think Walt knew this very well and applied it, you know, to to his films and really understood that. I, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, it really can change the mm-hmm. entire mood and everything. So music is awesome. What makes a great song? Oh well, if we if we knew that, right, then you know I'd hang up on you right now and go write ten of them. <laughs> it, it's just like William Goldman said all those years ago about the movies in general. Nobody knows anything, right? There are and and if you go on YouTube, there are a hundred different videos about you know. So here's here's how a hook works, and here's what really. But that's all deconstructing that's all reverse engineering something to say this is why it works the question is when you start with a blank palette how do you make something work there's no you know it it just i think it's a combination of of being brave and pushing boundaries i mean i'm a i'm a huge fan of the music of stephen sondheim and you if you listen to early sondheim it sounded like traditional broadway of the 40s and 50s when he first started writing when you listen to his his early music like the music for uh, a <clears throat> funny thing happened on the way to the forum 
But then you get into Sweeney Todd and into the woods, man, he went off on a whole different path. Well, that's the, what I'm talking about, the, being brave to, to forge new kinds of things. And of course, there's a lot to be said. Uh, there's been study recently too about, you know, that, that repetition and hook, you know, uh, one of my, one of my least favorite songs, but certainly one of the most popular and it just hangs out, you know, is uh, MC Hammer, Don't Touch This. But it's the same four notes. Okay, what I just sang you is the entire song. But he picked the right notes in the right order and the right rhythm. And it mm-hmm. and it, it it caught. You know, so that's why I say when you, you can't compare that to anything Sondheim ever wrote, yet they have equal strength and popularity with their respective audiences, right? Yeah, that's that's well put. You know, it's funny you say that. I took a class in college where uh, a guy by the name of Nat Perrin was the producer mm-hmm. or was the teacher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he had done a whole bunch of different things. He said, I had a nice living, living in the Valley, working on Westerns at Warner Brothers. I went to work for the Adams family. Uh, Vic Mizzy writes, and I'm living in Bel Air. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep. Yep. That was great. Absolutely. Everybody knows this, right? Everybody knows that. So, Kurt, uh, Chris, um, were there any Disney films or songs when you were young uh, that you deem as influential uh, in steering you toward a career in music? Or were there any particular composers throughout the run of hmm. Disney movie songs? That's a good question. Let me see. I mean, definitely. I mean, you know, I was very big into Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins came on when I was, what, six? Mary Poppins was mm-hmm. 64. Yeah, so I was six mm-hmm. years old. And we had the album. And, you know, and I supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is a great song. But I don't, I don't know that any of that pushed me towards my music. What pushed me towards my music career was uh herb alpert and the tijuana brass <laughs> a i wanted to play the, i wanted to play the trumpet so I, that was my instrument i took up the trumpet in the third grade and i wanted to lead the band like herb did so by the time i was in the sixth grade i had my first conducting experience and i led our school choir in the hit song of 1968 9 raindrops keep falling on my head that's nice. awesome Hate to keep dragging us back to Disney, but uh, <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> kind of what the Sorry. theme of the show is. <laughs> that's my fault. Well, we will blame nobody but you. Um, <laughs> and side note on Herb Albert, you guys wanted to maybe direct, uh, lead the band. I wanted to take the photo of the girl on the whipped cream cover. That's just me, though. Um, <laughs> oh, the whipped cream cover. So good. Um, so controversial for 1960, whatever that was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we, Kirk and I mentioned earlier in the first part of the show that there are certain, I guess there are so many Disney movies that have multiple great songs in it, not just one trick ponies with that one marquee mm-hmm. moment, one song. Um, right. Do you have a couple of those films that stand out to you, such as, you know, Lion King or Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast or Mary Poppins? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and, and they're part of my and they're part of my list. So maybe we should start gravitating toward the list, and we can do that. But I will say this: something occurred to me as I was compiling the list and doing the thing. So bear, you know, cut me off if I'm getting too windy here. But the American musical, as we know it today, started with Rodgers and Hammerstein with Carousel in the '40s. Mm-hmm. Okay, so some of the Disney music that is so well known predates this. And, and it treated it the same way. So Rodgers and Hammerstein were the first composers to do a musical on Broadway where the music was an integral part of the storytelling. 
You do musicals before that, it wasn't. It was story, story, stop, music, dance number, you know, for entertainment purposes that often had nothing to do with the story. It was just uh, some thing to, and then story, story, and another musical number. Right. A great example is uh, 42nd Street does that, and No, No, Nanette does that, and even Showboat to a certain degree, although Showboat started to show signs of that. But anyway, Rodgers and Hammerstein started to really integrate the the, the uh, songs into the story so that it, it all flowed like this. As I say, so Disney also was doing that. Like, for example, you know, the songs in Pinocchio, you know, they're like two songs in Pinocchio. They really don't do much to help the story per se. They're great songs, mm-hmm. but they're not story. Thing. So when did Disney really start storytelling, doing musical theater? Mm-hmm. It was with the animation Renaissance with the little mermaid and Alan Menken and, t- and, uh, Howard Ashman. Mm-hmm. We covered a lot of that ground in the, in, when we went over our lists, that that's one of the things we both talked about is that really mm-hmm. it, it was, it was Menken that came in after mm-hmm. they, well, that 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 pairing that had done, I think it was Little Shop, and then right. they had come out and, and Disney hired him, and and man, boom, 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 and it's really evident, yeah, you know that that structure is present once you know how to look for it. For this theater illiterate guy, me, mm-hmm. I didn't recognize that until I started reading up when preparing for this show, mm-hmm. and went, I'll be damned, that's exactly what happened. Right, 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 right. There's at least three different Disney songs that have small subtle borrows from especially from the little shop soundtrack that that you can find and uh, you can place in there but uh yeah i think uh Macon and ashman yep. and uh Macon and rice and then uh the sherman brothers obviously though those guys are the backbone of right. uh what has become disney music and others are carrying on the torch but i think Absolutely. those two groupings are primarily responsible Okay, well let's yeah. let's do go to your list right. because I, I think you kind of whetted our appetite and you okay. teased a little there. So, Chris Ledesma, <laughs> starting uh, yeah, this okay. is going to be interesting. Starting with number ten, right. who who makes your top ten? Number ten, um, go the distance from Hercules. Mm-hmm. What I like about go the distance is is it's it's in the it's a great combination of being the right style of being a it's a little bit of a pop song, but it's also got a, a nice heroic feel the chords in it and and the brass play it and it's it's subtle it's not overpowering but it's subtle and uh it's a really really good but i think underappreciated song it's a great song and that's menken and i believe tim rice i think tim rice was doing lyrics on hercules what's number nine okay uh the number nine uh topsy turvy from hunchback Oh, I forgot about that. The, the song, op- the whole movie opens, you know, with Quasimodo's, you know, desires what's going to happen with his life. And then, of course, the big number is the Bells of Notre Dame. But this, this fun, th- this one sort of uh, ray of light in an otherwise dark mm-hmm. movie was such a great feeling thing. It, it, it gave a good, and it was early in the movie, so I can't say it really gave you a break. It was, it was like either the second or third song in the movie. But a, a great tour de force type of Broadway style number in the style of uh, Be Our mm-hmm. Guest. Mm-hmm. You know, it had that same sort of, you know, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that uh, topsy turvy. And it's, and it's big. And, and that too, by the way, let me, let me back up. You know, if you go listen to the uh, Little Mermaid soundtrack, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm being a little uh, snooty here about my being in my business. I know where they recorded uh, Little Mermaid. It was recorded at a studio 
that doesn't really exist anymore. It's called it's called Evergreen. It's on Magnolia in Burbank. Um, and it was recorded with pretty much like only about a 35, maybe 40-piece orchestra because this was their first foray into this. So they didn't pour a lot of money into it, right? And if you listen really carefully, if you got good tuned musical ears, you can hear not only the small orchestra, you can hear the small room. You can hear the reflections, the walls. It's not a big mm -hmm. place. Then suddenly you go on to Beauty and the Beast and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And now the success had happened. And now we go to the hundred piece orchestra on a major stage in New York. And the, the difference is night and day. And Topsy Turvy is a great song to showcase. Wow. That they just, they threw money at this, like nobody's business compared to right. Mermaid. Right. Yeah. Good choice. That's a great insight. Yeah. I love that. I love yeah. that. What's your next? All right. What's number eight? You ain't never had a friend like me. Robin Williams doing you know probably the the one and only time you really got to cut loose and and sing you know and get showcased and again for me you know so much of aladdin had this uh, middle eastern flavor to it but again i like that we just break out of there and here we go it's another it's a vaudeville number yeah. now but great great song you know it, it was just a total island of happiness in the otherwise Middle Eastern flavored score. Cool. A quick side note on that. I have had a friend who worked on that movie and when they were getting ready to record that people started piling into the observation uh, booth to watch Robin work. And so much so that the Disney fire marshal had to show up and said, capacity is whatever it was and said, you out, 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 out. <laughs> and so, but they were just jamming it in there to see Robin. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, number seven. Uh, another heartbreaking song. Easily is heartbreaking, but but not so much. The, 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 the placement in the movie and the lyrics did it, but not the tune so much. Remember Me from Coco. Mm -hmm. One of the newer Remember entries. Remember Me. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I think it had the same the same emotional impact as, as When Somebody Loved Me. Uh, oh, and guess what? That's a Pixar movie, isn't it? Sorry. That's <laughs> okay. Just yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> but... It's a good song. That's okay. Guests get leeway. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, but, but uh, yeah, I, 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 it has that. If you've seen the movie, you know they say. Well, spoiler if they haven't seen the movie, but the point is they set this song up throughout the the movie numerous times, and and in it, it's just it's a little ditty. It's a little thing, and then so I won't give away the big story point for those who haven't seen it. But when the big turning point at the end of the movie or near the end of the movie comes and they sing this song in that context breaks your heart and in a good way right right well just fantastic very cool great choice we won't count the pixar thing on you because by that time the two had merged so we'll call that disney what the heck <laughs> what's your next one <laughs> okay very good well that's true that's true yeah okay uh well i mentioned it earlier and this is disney uh into the unknown from frozen 2 mm-hmm um, I like it better than um, than Let It Go. It's the same kind of uh, of feeling and attitude from the character, but but more determined and more mysterious. And I love the, the you know the integration of the of the Nordic sounds that uh, that uh, Bobby Lopez and Kristen Lopez were able to mix into this thing. And like I say, go watch that episode on Disney plus of the making of frozen two and go, I think it's episode three. It's either two or three is all about the making of this song. And boy, is it exciting, <laughs> at least for music nerds. And another Oscar winner. Uh, what's your next one? That's how, you know, from enchanted. Oh, nice. Uh, 
another Mencken, another Mencken great. And, and again, I, th- I, and I didn't even realize this, but as I'm going through this and talking about it out loud, the thing I like about it is that it steps out of, so, so a lot of the music, the score and the songs of Enchanted were sort of send ups of early Disney fairy princess movies. Mm-hmm. And so they had this snow white Cinderella quality to them, but that's how, you know, has a Latin sort of boom, bum, boom, ba, dum, bum, ba, dum, bum, da, dum, ba, dum, bum, ba, dum. Oh, and it's it, it comes out of nowhere it, that that it's got this entirely different feel. And Amy Adams it was a it was a revelation that she could sing like that and yeah, she was great. and do this number. Uh, yeah, really great. Nice. All right, you're down to tell your top four. This is your Mount Rushmore. Who's number four? There we go. A song. And I will admit, it's not just the song. It's the entire cinematic experience. I mean, I will listen to this song, but I will watch this song anytime, day or night, on a loop, Step in Time from Mary Poppins. Great. Great song. Dick Van Dyke, dancing his heart out. And the guy was already 40-some years old, I believe, when he did this. Unbelievable. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if many people noticed this, and they're going to they're gonna, rag on me for this i liked mary poppins returns i don't have any dislike of the movie but i found that beat for beat it felt like the same movie Mm -hmm. and notice that there is this big dance number with the lamplighters Mm -hmm. about two-thirds of the way three-quarters of the way through the movie i'm going well this is step in time i mean you know and i love mark shaman's music for the new one great great songs and great great um tributing sure. you know to to the sherman brothers but step in time oh man yeah great it, it just it it's it's great on every count and not only that like i say i want to watch it the, the dancing is great the movement the singing everything and they integrated uh you know animation with it as well it was just fabulous how about number three number three gaston from beauty and the beast yeah yeah, Kirk and I were talking about that. Yeah, the villain songs. Yeah, I love Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. I removed it from my list uh, the night before. <laughs> it was on my list, and then the night before, I moved <laughs> it up for something else. But... <laughs> yep. No, I love I love Gaston. I love uh, in the original animated version. Um, and I don't know if you ever saw the stage version, the Broadway version. The, the song is pretty much the same, but it, the choreography is greatly expanded. And mm-hmm. it's very fun and exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, as a matter of fact, yeah. It, it, but, but what's nice about this being the villain song is it's a right. happy villain song. Exactly. It's a happy villain song. And, it's, and it's a beer hall it's, song. It's really, really fun. <laughs> All right. We're down to two. What's your number two? Number two, uh, one of the greatest I want songs in the Disney repertoire of this, of the musical thing. And I'll expand on that in a second. But anyway, Belle, the opening number from Beauty and the Beast. Beautiful song. Beautiful song. And so, so since Kirk was studying up on his, on his musical theater history. So the biggest thing in musical theater is, is the, I want, well, the two big things are the, I want song and the 11 o'clock song, but the, I want song is, is the main exposition. It's when the main character tells you exactly what they want. And it usually happens within the first three songs of any musical. In the case of beauty and the beast, it's in the first song. And, and often, you know, they even use the word want in it. Mm-hmm. I want adventure in the big wide somewhere. Right. She says, that's what I want. Uh, Ariel says, I want to be where the fishes are. Yep. I want to. So 
the I Want song. This is one of the greatest I Want songs. And as I said, in not in just the context of the movie itself, but in the context of Disney's new ascension to the heights of animated musical theater, this was the follow-up to The Little Mermaid. So if you love The Little Mermaid and it set your hair on fire to wait what was going to be next and you go to see beauty and the beast and this is the first thing you hear mind bending and life changing (laughs) i'm so glad you you did some exposition on the i want song because steve and i touched on that concept when we were exchanging our lists and i did Mm a horrible job of describing (laughs) what it was so so kids Listen to Chris. Don't listen to me. <laughs> oh, you weren't that bad. You were fine. <laughs> I say, just so anybody, just you know, just put on your favorite cast album, and within the first three songs, the lead character is going to tell you tell you what they want, what their goal of the musical is, and may and may very often actually use the words "I want" in the song. That's right. All right, that brings us All down right. to the penultimate uh, movie in Chris Ledesma's list. Yeah, and and after all this, uh, you got to go with. The signature song, the one I think that represents Disney, but also it just, it's so simple, it's perfect. It's a, When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio. Yeah, that's a that's ding, a clean sweep. All three of us right? agree. That's the one, right? <laughs> no, it's, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's such a simple song. The chord progression is so simple and so straightforward. So then what makes it, I mean, if the chords are so simple... And so almost unimaginative than what makes the song a fantastic melody and the words fit just right. The word, you know, uh, you need to study, you know, great um, lyricists, great lyrics, you know, study uh, Oscar Hammerstein's lyrics to, uh, to Roger's music, anything Sondheim. Sondheim wrote two books the size of uh, telephone books about lyric writing and, and what it is. And that's what makes this song so perfect. The melody is just right, and the lyrics fit it perfectly, and the lyrics tell the story of I want to be a real boy. Mm-hmm. Without even saying those words yep. in there. Without even saying anything about alluding to being a real boy. But that's yep. what it's about. And that's awesome. That is such a great description. Yeah. Such a great description. Yeah. Well, that's a fantastic list. Uh, really, really good choices. Really good insight on them as well. Thank you for that. We uh, we expected nothing less from you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. This was awesome. Oh. This was absolutely terrific. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. Thanks for asking me. Before we let you go, though, just briefly, uh, what, what's coming up next fr- from you? And is there a way on social media that people can follow you if they chose to? Sure. And is it possibly Simpsons related? <laughs> Only slightly. <laughs> uh, okay, so on Twitter, I'm at MXEDTR. M, like Mary, like music. MXEDTR. It's like a very smooshed version of music editor. Music editor. MX- Got it, yeah. EDTR. So that's where you find me on Twitter. And my blog is called Simpsons Music 500. The web address is a little more convoluted than that, but if you just Google, Simpsons Music 500, with or without the spaces. Google knows how to find me. You'll mm-hmm. find my blog. And the 500, interestingly enough, refers to the fact that I started writing the blog as we were coming into the approach pattern of 500 episodes. Oh, nice. 
But Actually, this Sunday, uh, I'm not sure when. When does this show hit the the interwebs? This coming up Saturday, so like in two oh, days. Oh, very good. So like well, for the twentieth. Well, then yeah. tomorrow, if this guy actually comes out on uh, the twentieth, tomorrow the twenty first uh, will be our seven hundredth episode. God, that's amazing! Congratulations! Yeah, that's amazing. Yes. that is that is terrific. Yes. So you can go to the blog. Um, I will be honest. I haven't posted. A lot lately, even in the last couple years, because I think I I'd covered it. You know, I wanted to cover my story, what I do on the show, how I work on the show, and then of course the approach to 500 episodes, and then mm-hmm. beyond. I went beyond, but in the last couple of years, you know, there's there's not a lot about just saying the same thing over and over and over. So more, I've gone to mini micro blogging on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Every now and again, I will throw up a post. I threw up a very clever Christmas post on on my blog just this past December. So. Don't go there looking for a lot of new content, but there's a lot of content. There's easily like a hundred posts there. Tells you a lot about the history of the music on the show, how I work on the show and everything. And people find it to be good. And they ask me questions about, you know, what was that piece of music in episode 75? And I I take the time. I look it up. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Well, as Kirk said, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show. It's great to see you and catch up with you. It's a, it's always way too long in between visits, and so it's always good to see your face. Thank you for making the time oh, for well, us. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks again. Stay safe, and, and I hope our paths cross soon. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that was awesome. Good to see Chris. Good to hear uh, all his stories and his insights. Uh, the man is a wealth of knowledge for sure, and obviously very good at his job. <laughs> He's been there doing it for a long time. Yeah, it's always it's always a pleasure to talk with Chris. He is he is as you said a wealth of knowledge. He's engaging, explains things well. Uh, I always learn stuff when when he talks about his profession and music in general. So it was good to have him on, and and uh, he had some great songs. Made me think about. You know, some of the Disney songs I really hadn't considered as strongly as some of the others. Well, that brings us into uh, our other regular segment, which is The Populist. The Populist. It's the chance where our listeners uh, get a say in what's going on. Uh, they've gone onto our website at populistpodcast.net. They voted on their top 10 lists for the best Disney uh, movie songs of all time. So the listeners have spoken and they say at number 10, this is a uh, quite a bunch. There was a big tie here. Uh, they have a spoonful of sugar from Mary Poppins, a friend like me, which was on Chris's list, uh, Gaston, which also was on Chris's list. Someday my prince will come, which was on yours. Hi ho! Can you feel the love tonight? And kiss the girl from Little Mermaid. Those are all tie for number ten. Number nine also has a tie with How Far I'll Go from Moana, Hakuna Matata from uh, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. Poor Unfortunate Souls from Little Mermaid and Cruella DeVille. Number eight, all by itself, was Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas. Number seven was a small tie of Zippity Doodah from Song of the South, A Whole New World from Aladdin, Under the Sea from uh, Little Mermaid, and I Want to Be Like You, a King Louis song from The Jungle Book. Number six, a tie between Be Our Guest, uh, Chim Chim Cheri, and Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, so the two of the Mary Poppins songs tied there. Now, from five through one, there's only one movie per slot. Number five was Lion King's Circle of Life. Number four was Frozen's Let It Go. Number three was Part of Your World from Little Mermaid. Number two was When You Wish Upon a Star by Pinocchio. What? Yep. Leaving number one, The Bare Necessities from Jungle Book. 
It was close. How many times did you vote? I only voted once. How many times did you vote? I only voted once. Uno. <laughs> Uno. Good job, listeners. As always, uh, you brought your own take uh, to the list. And uh, even though we have a lot of ties, uh, that always gets uh, solved when more people vote. The more people vote, the less ties we have. So keep it up. We do appreciate and your input. again, not a bad song on the list. No. I mean, these are all just great songs. Yeah, like you and I said at the top of the show, you know, we could do a top 25 and have 25 great songs and still have a few left over that maybe could have, would have, should have been on the list. Well, yeah, absolutely. That a lot was, of fun. Good to speak with Chris. Nice to banter with you. Yeah, as always. And uh, next time on our next show, we will have uh, the best stand-up comics of all time. If you go on to populistpodcast.net, that poll is already up. Uh, I think there's about 40 choices of uh, some of the best male and female stand-up comics of all time. And just so people know, this is not the people that are just funny in movies. These are the stand-up comics, the ones who go to the clubs, go to the big theaters, and they got the mic in front of them or the mic in their hand, and they're doing their bit. They're doing their sets. So uh, go vote on those, and we will talk about that next time. Um, check out stuff about our show. Uh on that website as well. You can find out a little about us about past episodes they are all there and subscribe to the show, please. So it'll automatically be downloaded and you won't miss any of the fun coming up. And you can find all the episodes of populist, both old and new on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or wherever you go to get your quality podcasts. Populist is a member of the Buzzsprout community and we are a vintage year production. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash populist podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at populist underscore pod or Instagram as populist pod. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. As we said before, we do appreciate you, each and every one of you. We love that uh, you tune in and listen to our silliness. And uh, you're a huge part of our ever-growing pod. And we hope to be doing this for a long time. Thanks again, everybody. Please stay safe. Take care of yourself, Steve. You too, Kirk. And uh, look forward to uh, our discussion on the stand-up comic. That should be a fun one as well. Getting started on it now. Stay safe, everyone. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>